Today, as you know, the uh, subject is uh, activity and repose. Activity and repose. And I'm going to talk on two related subjects, activity and repose, and the related subject, or which this uh, segs into neatly, which is uh, self-effort and surrender. But uh, starting with uh, activity and repose, that's uh, something that all of us are familiar with, the, uh, the need for activity and the desire for repose, the enjoyment of repose. Uh, and repose seems so difficult for us to get. First of all, some people seem to be sort of hardwired for activity. They love to be active. They love the uh, the rush, uh, the adrenaline, adrenaline rush of activity. And uh, I had a, an acquaintance in upstate New York when I was at Ridgely who used to. He was a professional cook, uh, and a, a very good uh, cook. Who worked as a top chef in good restaurants. And he said he just loved the adrenaline rush of the pressure of, uh, of working in the kitchen something I couldn't identify with much, but some people love that. They're sort of hardwired for activity. Other people uh, uh, have more of an inclination towards uh, repose. But the problem is, in life we find that real repose is very difficult. Yes, we sometimes get a good night's sleep and feel rested. Sometimes on a uh, lazy Sunday afternoon, especially a nice spring day when uh, the sun is shining and the grass is beginning to grow and flowers are beginning to bloom again. Of course, in Southern California, flowers bloom all year, but uh, the spring flowers are blooming anyway. Uh, then uh, we get a nice uh, Sunday afternoon nap and feel very relaxed and we feel that, oh, there's the experience of some repose. And we hear about meditation and think, oh, I'm going to uh, learn to meditate. I'm going to practice meditation, and uh, there I'll get real repose. And then we find that meditation itself is very difficult, uh, that uh, repose in meditation is the result of uh, the, the end result of meditation, not the practice of meditation, which is work. And uh, so we have this constant tension in life between the necessity for activity, and yes, many of us uh, love activity, and that's a good thing if we uh, uh, like action, like to be active. Uh, but all of us also seek repose and yet find that so difficult. So many people have come to me over the years as they come to many of our swamis and uh, uh, say, oh, Swami, I just wish I, uh, someone could teach me how to turn my mind off, just to tell it to shut up. Uh, and uh, I'm sure we've all experienced that, where the mind just goes on and on. Even if the body is uh, resting, the mind keeps going on. And we all know how miserable that is to lie down at night and just to feel completely wired. And you know that oh, I'm never going to relax. I'm just like this. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we long for the uh, moment of uh, repose. And so this is one of the contradictions in life, that life itself is activity. Even in sleep, except for deep sleep, deep, deep dreamless sleep is the only place other than deep meditation uh, where we experience deep repose. Because even in normal sleep, we're dreaming and the mind is active. And yes, the body might get uh, some rest, the mind might get some rest, uh, but we long for deep repose, deep repose. But again, that comes in deep sleep, but the problem is in deep sleep, we don't remember much about it except that I was just gone. I didn't know anything. Uh, and it's uh, something that's not over our control. We don't enter it consciously and we don't come out of it uh, when we're ready to come out of it. It just happens and then, then it's over. And during the state of deep sleep, we really are not aware fully of what's, uh, we're not aware of what's going on. 
the uh, ego is uh, submerged, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, activities of mind are stopped, and we're just there, but we don't really fully uh, know that we're there. And so uh, deep meditation is really the only place where repose is possible. And that is so difficult to get. It takes a lifetime of effort to get to a state of meditation deep enough where we experience uh, complete, uh, complete repose. So, again, that's one of the, uh, one of the problems in life. Uh, as the beautiful uh, hymn at the beginning uh, quoted the verse from the Gita where Sri Krishna says that uh, uh, he is a true yogi who sees action in the midst of inaction and sees inaction in the midst of action. Uh, and that's uh, considered to be a very high state, but that's the... That's the uh, key to the deep practice of karma yoga, the path of action. When we can find in the midst of the most intense activity, we can find uh, intense rest. That is, inside we're completely uh, quiet, but not like in deep sleep where we don't know what's going on. <clears throat> but we're fully conscious, fully aware, fully present, and yet inside completely quiet while the outside is fully engaged in action. Um, and on the other hand, see the intensest action in the midst of silence. That is, the sage also sees when everything is quiet, when everything is silent, when nature is quiet, when the body is still, uh, the mind is fully awake. The intensest action here means the intensest presence of awareness. The intensest presence of awareness. Thank you. Uh, that's uh, the, uh, the state of... Intense action in the midst of silence. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that in the midst of silence uh, the sage is busy doing something, thinking about all kinds of things and planning out uh, his uh, days ahead and so forth. No, it means that in the midst of this intensest silence the mind is fully awake, f uh, fully present, f uh, in uh, intense with a, uh, an unusual edge of intensity. In fact, Swami Yatishwarananda a great uh, Swami of our uh, order, who passed away long ago, 1965, uh, he used to say that if the ordinary person could see into the mind um, of the mental state of an advanced spiritual aspirant, they would be terrified because of the intensity of the awareness. Not that it's terrifying to the person who has it, uh, but terrifying to the ordinary person because we're used to sort of a muddled, muddied state. And with that intensity of cl that intense clarity, intense uh, presence of mind, the intense intense presence of consciousness, it's like a fire uh, in its intensity. So action and uh, repose, activity and repose. Um, now I want to bring in, as I said, the topic of self-effort and surrender. Because this is tied to the topic of ac activity and repose. Self-effort is the realm of activity, the realm where we strive. And uh, surrender is where we surrender into repose. Surrender into repose. And as I'll say as we go further, uh, surrender in this broad sense is uh, a practice both for the bhakta and for the jnani, both for one on the path of knowledge and for one on the path of uh, devotion. Both uh, 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 practice surrender of this, of this type. One practice surrender into the arms of God, into the lap of God. The other surrenders into the uh, light of consciousness, uh, surrenders their identity into the ocean of consciousness. And uh, so both are not, uh, neither is as different from the other as it uh, might, uh, might seem. 
So justice between action and activity and repose, that's a, 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 a tension between the desire for these two that all of us experience. And there's also a tension between self-effort and surrender. Uh, attention because uh, spiritual life requires great effort and yet we're seeking uh, to do this effort uh, uh, in the, uh, uh, for the purpose of attaining to complete uh, surrender. And uh, so we know that we have to do things in order to lead a spiritual life. We have to practice, we have to strive, uh, uh, and all striving is self-effort in a spiritual life. And yet we're seeking to surrender to the ultimate reality. And so there's this tension between the need, to, need for self-effort and the desire to uh, surrender. It also presents, of course, a paradox, because a paradox because uh, surrendering, who surrenders? It's the self that uh, surrenders. It's the self that strives, that surrenders itself into the no-self, into the uh, infinite, uh, beyond the sense of individual self. So, But that surrender, uh, which is the end of the path, uh, that requires great self-effort. Even, as I'll explain later, even if our path is one of surrender, that itself takes great self-effort. <clears throat> and self-effort is aimed at transcendence of the self who is striving. So we have this paradox. And also it's, uh, it points to a major division between spiritual aspirants. Those who give more emphasis to self-effort, who say that uh, nothing is going to happen unless I strive, I, I'm the one who has to sit for meditation, I'm the one who has to study the scriptures, I'm the one who has to uh, do all of these practices and purify the mind and heart, and etc., uh, so those aspirants who rightly emphasize self-effort, and they're those who emphasize surrender, that no, it's not me, not me, uh, but uh, uh, you, O oh Lord, it's you who do everything. Let me continually remember to surrender everything to you, including the sense of self-effort. All of that I surrender to you. So you find aspirants who tend towards one or the other uh, of these practices. The Gita, Bhagavad Gita, uh, itself points to this tension and this uh, paradox uh, between the two, the need for self-effort and the, uh, and the uh, aim of uh, surrender. In the first uh, two uh, verses attributed to Krishna, in the second chapter, verses 2 and 3, where Sri Krishna begins to speak to Arjuna after Arjuna said that I'm going to give up the fight. I can't face fighting my kinsmen and my teach revered teachers and so forth, uh, so it's better that I... Uh, but not uh, not to engage in this awful battle, and so he's given up the uh, the uh, fight. And so Krishna begins by insulting him. He says, "Kutastva kashmalamidam, uh, vishame samupastitam." Whence has come upon you this weakness, O Arjuna? In the midst of this crisis, here you are in this crisis on the battlefield. Your whole life has brought you here. Whoops! Your whole life has brought you here. I guess that was supposed to go under. Okay. <laughs> Uh, the, your whole life has brought you here to this uh, uh, point of battle, and uh, now you want to give it up. Uh, where, where in, this, in the midst of this crisis, where has this weakness come upon you? Uh, an that which is ignoble, a uh, swargyam, which is contrary to the attainment of heaven, uh, uh, and a uh, and which is contrary to the attainment of fame. 
One of the great things about Sri Krishna, which is uh, different from many of the great teachers of the world, uh, until you come to someone like Vivekananda, is that Sri Krishna made use of everything, as Swami Vivekananda points out in his lecture on Krishna, given in Northern California in 1900. Sri Krishna made use of everything. So here he insults uh, uh, Arjuna and uh, even appeals to his desire for fame and says, you who are a great man, uh, you're doing something which is beneath your dignity. Uh, calling on him to uh, to uh, an appeal to his dignity and uh, his appeal uh, appeals to his uh, desire for fame that this which uh, which you're doing running from the battle is contrary to the attainment of fame and so krishna uh, uses uh, whatever is at hand and wherever the person is takes the person where they are and pushes him forward so he begins by insulting him and he goes on in the th- third verse uh, saying, uh, 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 in, in insulting him, insulting his manhood and so forth, and saying that you must uh, you must uh, uh, stand up uh, and not give way to this uh, weak, faint-heartedness. So uh, there, Sri Krishna is appealing to Arjuna on the basis of the need for self-effort. Stand up and fight. Don't be weak. Don't be a coward. Stand up and fight. Swami Vivekananda interestingly said that these two verses, the second and third verses of the third chapter, are the, uh, the central message of the Gita. I'm sure that there's no one, I've certainly never come across anyone, and I can't imagine any of the great teachers of Vedanta who ever said that the second and third verses of the Gita are the essence of the Gita. Because after that comes Krishna's great spiritual teachings, the nature of the uh, nature of the self, the nature of devotion, uh, the nature of meditation, uh, and so forth. The rest of the 18 chapters are all about the highest spiritual teachings that uh, Krishna gives to Arjuna. But Swamiji says, no, the second and third chapter, or the second and third verse in the second chapter where Arjuna insults, or Krishna insults Arjuna and tells him that you must stand up and uh, not give uh, away to this uh, weak faint-heartedness, that that's the essence of Krishna's message. Why did he say that? Because of the need for strength in the face of life. What to speak of spiritual life, just ordinary life. We need strength. We have to have strength. And so Krishna calls out that strength from Arjuna. Whether we follow later the path of surrender or the path of effort, uh, self-effort, we need great strength to face the difficulties of life and, and the, uh, the problems of uh, spiritual life. And so Swamiji said that was the essence of the Gita because that was uh, what comes through in every verse of the Gita of uh, Krishna's instructions to Arjuna, no matter what he's teaching. It's based on this appeal uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to strength and fearlessness. And then in the 18th chapter, so this is one side where Krishna says at the beginning of his uh, teaching, uh, this need for self-effort, stand up and fight. And uh, at the end of the Gita, in the 18th chapter, near the end of the last chapter, uh, Sri Krishna tells Arjuna, Sarva-dharman parityajya mamekam sharanam vraja. Having renounced all other dharmas, having renounced all refuges, having renounced all supports, having renounced all concepts, everything, take refuge in me alone. Aham tva sarvapape bhyo moksha ishyami ma shuchaha. I'll save you from all evil. Don't uh, fear. Uh, so surrender, give up all uh, other dharmas, all other supports, and take refuge in me alone. Have no fear because I will save you from all evil. And so here at the end of the Gita, Sri Krishna gives uh, this teaching of the highest uh, surrender. Uh, but he gives it at the end of the Gita because by then, 
Arjuna can understand the context for uh, knowing what surrender is, surrendering into the ultimate repose, surrendering all sense of activity, all sense of agentship into the ultimate repose. And so uh, uh, it took the 18 chapters of the Gita to convince Arjuna that his surrender at the beginning was a false surrender. He was surrendering out of weakness. He was, he was not really surrendering to God. He was retreating into his own weakness, his own desire for a false repose, his desire to escape from responsibility, uh, to escape from the contradictions of life. And so Krishna says, no, you can't do that. Stand up and fight. Uh, don't worry, uh, I'm uh, with you. He uh, tells him at different stages in the Gita. Uh, and uh, then after he's convinced Arjuna of, uh, of uh, a higher truth, a higher standpoint, then he says, yes, then you can surrender into the higher repose. Give up all other dharmas, all other refuges, and take refuge in me alone. So there in the Gita itself, he points to this contradiction between uh, the need for self-effort and the desire and the need for uh, surrender. So let's look for a few minutes at the elements of this uh, contradiction, taking first self-effort. And I take self-effort first because whether, again, whether we emphasize self-effort in our spiritual path or whether we emphasize surrender as our path itself, both take great effort. So who is the self who strives, the self who makes an effort, or say self-effort? Well, actually, self-effort is redundant because all effort is on behalf of a self. A non-self makes no effort. A machine works, a machine expends energy, but a, she, a machine isn't trying to do anything. A machine uh, doesn't make any effort uh, whatsoever. The machine uh, just, uh, just whirs, it just uh, puts out, it just uh, transforms energy from one form to another. And uh, 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 that's all that it can do. So all effort is effort based on a desired end. So all effort is striving on behalf of a self. And so effort is self-effort. But we say self-effort just to emphasize uh, that uh, fact, that it is effort on behalf of a self. Um, yeah, because it, uh, all effort, again, in, indicates purposive activity. So who is this self that strives? What is this self? And that's one of the key questions in Vedanta. One of the, uh, uh, th one of the points most uh, important to understand in order to understand Vedanta... Most people, and I found this even uh, in India among students of Vedanta, uh, people know about the, who study Vedanta know about the Atman, uh, know about the infant self, that there is one self to the universe, and I am that if they accept non-dualistic Vedanta. Uh, but then you bring up the individual self. Well, what about you? I said, well, I'm, uh, 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 I'm uh, just an appearance that's really just the infinite self. Yes, but all of your spiritual practice, all of your daily life, everything that you do all day, even your meditation, uh, is based on the sense of an individual self. The Atman doesn't meditate. The Atman doesn't read the scriptures. The Atman doesn't discriminate between the real and the unreal. The Atman doesn't eat lunch. The Atman doesn't uh, go to sleep at night. Uh, so our whole life is based on this concept of an individual self. And so if we don't understand that, we can't understand uh, 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 anything, really. Uh, we just have this sort of vague idea of some uh, transcendental Atman which we're supposed to be and we have no experience of and no connection between that and who we are. And so understanding this uh, self that strives is, is critical. 
And a point for understanding it is uh, a point of entry to understanding is to look at the difference between a computer and a human being. Uh, there's a lot of interest nowadays in AI or artificial intelligence. Uh, uh, and there are many uh, computer scientists in the field of uh, artificial intelligence who say that uh, once we can get uh, uh, a computer with hardware and uh, programming sufficiently complex, it can replicate human intelligence and it will be as good as a human being and maybe uh, much better than a human being. Uh, it's based on the idea uh, of uh, evolutionary biologists who say that uh, consciousness evolved in a human being when the nervous system became sufficiently complex. You reach a point of complexity. You start with a single cell with no nervous system, and gradually you get more and more complex systems until you get to a point where you begin to see the first flickerings of consciousness. And so from the uh, purely scientific standpoint, bad science, but purely scientific standpoint, and the most, a lot of science is based on bad science, I have to say. At least uh, the science may be, the research may be good, but it's bad, based on bad uh, uh, suppositions. Uh, and that is the consciousness is an epiphenomenon that comes out of the activities of matter. And so you get matter in a sufficiently complex arrangement, and suddenly it begins to exude, uh, secrete uh, consciousness. Uh, and so human consciousness is the most advanced form that we have. And so all we have to do is to uh, design a computer which is sufficiently complex, which is uh, programmed so that it can begin to program itself. It can learn from its experience and begin, begin to expand its programming on its own. Uh, and then we'll come to the point where the computer can replicate human consciousness. It can see, it can hear, it can think, it can talk, uh, respond, and so forth. No, that's all uh, ridiculous. It's based on a fundamental misunderstanding, and a fundamental misunderstanding which is so prevalent in the West. And that is, first of all, that consciousness is just an epiphenomenon. It's just something that comes out of the uh, uh, operations of uh, matter arranged in a certain state. In India, they understood long ago from the Vedic times, even before the Upanishads, and fully flowered at the time of the Upanishads, thousands of years ago, uh, that consciousness is a reality in itself. It is the reality in itself. Consciousness is not an operation of matter. And it's so easy for us to see that. We don't even have to come to the state of enlightenment to see that. Just a little bit of introspection, a little bit of deep thought. We see that consciousness is fundamentally different from processes. I'm aware of my body. Uh, my consciousness uh, is not identical to my body. If it were, I would be the body looking out, but I couldn't be aware of the body. The, the consciousness is not even identical with the mind because I can see the mind. I can watch my thoughts. And as I go deeper in spiritual life, I can see more and more of the so-called unconscious mind, which begins to become lit by consciousness and is no longer the unconscious mind. And so uh, consciousness is the light which illumines all of our experience. And once we begin to see that, and it's experiential, it's not uh, conceptual, it's not theoretical, science, the suppositions, the basic suppositions underlying modern science are suppositions. They're theoretical. They're theor theoretical models. No one has even seen matter. You can't see matter. No one has seen electricity. No one has seen an electron. Yes, you can see evidence of these things, but those are theories to explain phenomena that we experience with the senses. We don't see matter. We see light. 
we don't hear matter, we hear vibrations that are set up in the, uh, uh, in the ear. We don't feel matter, we feel pressure and temperature and so forth. And so matter is just a supposition. And yet the materialist has the audacity and the ignorance to say that there's nothing but matter when no one has ever even experienced matter. Matter is just something that we suppose exists to, to explain all of this that we see. Yes, it may be a very good explanation. It may be a good, but that's all that it is, is an explanation. And so consciousness is the fundamental difference between a living being, a sentient being, and a computer. A computer, you can program a computer to do calculations far faster, and if you get, have the proper hardware and the proper, proper programming, to do computations far faster than uh, the human mind can do. But the computer has no idea what's it, what it's doing. There's not a little person inside the computer who uh, is aware of the computation. No, you put input in, you, uh, get, in, uh, uh, you, you get a result out, uh, and then you, the human being who reads the output, knows what it has put out. The computer doesn't know what it's put out. Yes, you can program a computer to say, oh, good morning, Swami, how are you? I say, oh, hi, Hal, how are you doing? And uh, Hal says, well, I'm not doing so well today, but uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started anyway. And I, oh, I'm sorry, Sal, Hal. And he says, oh, don't worry about it, Swami. I'll be over it after a while. It's just something in my circuitry today that... Uh... <laughs> And, but uh, but is, is there any consciousness in the computer that knows what it's saying? No, that's been put into the computer by a human intelligence. And I, the human being with full consciousness, can uh, understand what the computer is saying. But the computer doesn't have any idea what it's saying. There's a fundamental difference, and that can't be bridged just by more and more complex programming. You still have the basic fundamental problem. The difference, so a, a sentient being, whether it's an amoeba, a bacterium, a human being, a worm, a tree, uh, 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 algae, a fungus, whatever. Uh, a living sentient being responds because there's sentience there, and sentience refers to its uh, uh, awareness, to the presence of consciousness. And consciousness can only be present in a living system, in a living organic system. Uh, and uh, so um, uh, the, uh, 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 that's an essential uh, difference between the machine uh, and a, a living being, whether human or non-human. Um, and uh, what, what is the essential nature of this being who strives, this conscious being who strives? First of all, Striving includes purposiveness, and the purpose can only pertain to something which is conscious, conscious, which is a sentient. A computer has no purpose in itself. A computer left to itself has no purpose whatsoever. We give it a, a purpose, and that purpose uh, serves us or serves other, other beings, uh, but it has none in itself. And so the fundamental qualities of a jiva, that is an individual soul, as it's called in uh, uh, Sanskrit, a jiva, is that it's a karta and bhokta. And the words are not important, but I mention them because some people are interested in these things, the technical language of Vedanta. Karta means an agent, and bhokta means an enjoyer. So the fundamental qualities of a sentient being, of a jiva, of an individual soul, is that I have a sense of being an agent of uh, action, that I do. I have to speak at 11 o'clock in the Hollywood Temple, so I drive up here from Tribuco and, uh, and come in when it's time to, to speak and begin speaking. I have a sense of 
uh, being the agent, the one who's going to speak. They say, Swami Aparupananda is going to speak and say, oh, that's me, okay, it's my turn, I'll go up and uh, speak in Hollywood. Uh, and we have the sense of being the bhukta, that is the enjoyer of, the, of experience. You're watching a beautiful sunset, who's enjoying it? You are. Uh, you, the individual soul, are enjoying. The computer doesn't enjoy a sunset, but a sentient being uh, can enjoy the sunset. A computer doesn't enjoy the music that it plays. You, the sentient being, can enjoy the music which is being played because of the presence of awareness, because of the presence of consciousness, this fundamental difference, which gives, when you're embodied in an individual form, when you're not the identified with the infinite, with the Atman, but are identified with an individual being, then you have the sense of being the agent of your actions and the enjoyer of the fruits of your actions. And so those are the fundamental elements of being a jiva, an individual uh, uh, sentient being. And the sense of agency is interesting, the, the karta hood, as we can say, uh, say in English. Uh, to be an agent, we have to have a sense of having a free will. We have to have the sense of free will in order to be an agent. If I'm just a machine, like a computer, then uh, 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 I don't have a sense of doing, of, uh, of options. I don't have a sense of making choices. Uh, but because I'm a sentient being, I have the sense of a free will. And so when uh, uh, somebody tells me, well, Swami, it's getting close to lecture time, you have to go to give your lecture, I have the sense that I can say, well, I'm not going to go today. You go give it. I'm not going. Nobody can make me go. This is a free country, and I'm just going to sit here. Uh, I don't do that, uh, but um, probably I should. It would be uh, much better for everybody if I did sometimes, but uh, I don't. And, uh, 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 but I have the sense of having a free will, that I can make this choice uh, if I want to. So the free will gives the sense of having the ability to choose, to make a free choice. But then we read spiritual teachers say that there's no such thing really as free will. There's no such thing really as free will. And so then here our whole sense of being an individual is based on the sense of free will, and yet uh, the great spiritual teachers tell us that the, the sense of uh, free will itself is mistaken. Swami Vivekananda, for instance, says, we see at once, and this is from Karma Yoga, we see at once that there cannot be any such thing as free will. The very words free will are a contradiction because will is what we know and everything that we know is within our universe we, uh, and everything within our universe is molded by time, space and causation and that which obeys the law of causation cannot be free. So let me stop here for a moment and explain uh, that the will is uh, a faculty that we have uh, I can will to uh, come to Hollywood to give uh, a talk, and if I'm feeling really bad, I just can't get up the strength of will to, can't muster the will to get up here and, and uh, do it, and have to call in and say, I just can't do it, I don't have it in me today. Uh, but uh, that will, that sense of will, that sense of having the cho uh, choice, as Swamiji says, that we, it can't really be free because everything within this universe is within time, space, and causation. So the will itself is a product of time, space, and causation, and anything that's tied to causation, meaning one thing causes another, uh, can't really be free. So the will is not really free. He goes on, it is acted upon by other agents and becomes a cause in its turn of other effects. But that which has become converted into the will, which was not the will before, but which when it fell into this mold of space-time and causation became converted into the human will, is free. 
And when this will gets out of the mold of space-time and causation, it will be free again. From freedom it comes and becomes molded into this bondage, and it gets out and goes back to freedom again. So this is a wonderful idea, that the will is a manifestation of something which is infinitely free, infinitely free with no compulsion whatsoever because there's no causation, no time, no space, no causation there. But when it manifests in us as an individual being with a sense of will, with a sense of purpose, it's not free. What does that mean? If you present me with uh, uh, two ice cream cones, one is uh, chocolate and one is vanilla, and say, Swami, which would you like? And I say, oh, good, I've got a choice. Well, I think I'll have uh, chocolate. Uh, And so I think I've made a free choice. No, I haven't made a free choice. That's ridiculous. If you knew the, uh, uh, the total picture of my mind, my psychology, my history and everything, you'd know that I'm going to choose chocolate. Uh, and if I chose vanilla one day, you, if you knew everything about me, you would know that, oh, he chose vanilla today because he's gotten tired of so much chocolate. Uh, and so it's predictable. It's not a free choice, really. I have the sense of making a free choice, but it's not a free choice. I think, okay, I'm, uh, uh, it's time for me to go lecture, but I don't have to go if I don't want to. Maybe I'll just sit here. If you knew me well enough, if I knew myself well enough, I would know that, no, I don't have any choice. I'm going to go and give the lecture. Even if I'm not feeling well, I'm going to go because that's the way that I am. There are causes within me. There are habits within me. There's a way that I've been brought up. There's a way that I've trained myself so that as long as I can give the talk, I'm going to show up and going to give it. And yet I have the sense that I don't really have to if I don't want to, but I'm going to because I want to. No, it's not because I want to. It's not because of a free choice. It's because something within me pushes me to do it. I can't go against it. If I try to go against it, I find that I I can't. It'll force me to come here and give the talk. And so we have this idea of free will in every action we do. We can't do anything without a sense of free will. And yet that sense of free will is based on a misunderstanding that there are reasons why we choose the things that we choose. And if we could see the whole picture, we would see that there are reasons. And yet Swamiji says that the idea of freedom is not an illusion. It's not an illusion. It's really the higher reality because uh, that's where we come from. That's our true nature, and it's constantly calling to us. And uh, uh, one of the beautiful ideas in Vedanta, something which hasn't really been drawn out of Vedanta, but it uh, should be, so uh, uh, I'll mention it now. Uh, there's this idea that you find mentioned in some uh, obscure texts on Vedanta, like the Laghu Vakya Vritti, which says that between every two moments of thought, between every two thought waves, there's a moment of silence in the mind when the light of the self shines forth. Every, between every two thoughts, this is happening. And those two th- thoughts in our minds are rising so quickly that we don't see it. But every moment, the light of the infinite self is shining through into our, um, into our experience. Uh, and that is the light of freedom. And so that light of freedom is constantly coming into our experience and calling us forward, calling us forward, giving us a sense that even now, in the midst of this apparent bondage, even now we're free. We are free. It's just that our freedom is not where we think it is. Our freedom is not where we think it is. It's not in making choices. So therefore, Swami Vivekananda says in another place, also given in California, and uh, I believe this was the open secret, he says, we are always seeking for someone who breaks the law 
This is why I love Swamiji. He uh, says in places uh, that uh, uh, that uh, uh, my praise is to the outlaw, the one who breaks the law. As we are always seek, seeking for someone who breaks the law. He says that we're all seeking to be outlaws. The rushing engine, a train engine, speeds along the railway track. The little worm crawls out of its way. We at once say that the engine is dead matter, a machine, and the worm is alive because the worm attempted to break the law. The engine with all its power and might can never break the law. It is made to go in any direction man wants, and it cannot do otherwise. But the worm, small though it was, attempted to break the law and assert its freedom, and there was the sign of the future God in it. What a wonderful statement. There within the worm, because of its effort to get off of the track, the train does whatever we tell it to do. And if it falls off the track, it's because of a human error, either in the laying of the tracks or something, or something caused it. But it's all causal, nothing but causal. The worm feels the vibration in the track and tries to get away. Why? Because it's sentient. Because there's something within it which knows what's going on. Yes, you could program a train... Uh, so that uh, if it felt a certain condition in the tracks, uh, uh, it would stop or something. But again, it doesn't know what it's doing. And yet the worm does know what it's doing. It's trying to save itself. And there, Swamiji says, is the sign of the future God within the worm. Because it has that element of freedom, even though our choices may be predictable, uh, there is an element of freedom. And therefore, Ramakrishna said... Uh, that uh, in the true sense there's uh, no free will and yet we do have a realm of freedom within our present experience which keeps us from being machines. Uh, He says that it's like the farmer who tethers a cow to a a post, to a stake. And as long as the rope is, within that uh, radius, the cow can wander at will. And he says if the farmer wants to, the farmer can extend the tether of the cow so it has more room to wander. And eventually, if the farmer is pleased, it can untie the cow altogether and let it wander where it will. And so that's a wonderful statement, not a philosophical statement, uh, because philosophy sometimes can't capture these subtleties because it uh, deals in categories which are more isolated and hard. Uh, But a wonderful statement which is true to experience, that we do have this sense of freedom within which we can operate. The worm has that sense of freedom within which it works, which the train engine doesn't have, which the computer doesn't have, in spite of its great uh, ability to calculate, to do processes. It doesn't have that sense of freedom. And so just as the cow can wander within the radius of its tether, so we too have this sense of freedom whereby we have something which distinguishes us from machines. If we were purely bound by causation, if we were absolutely bound by causation, everything about us was bound by causation, there'd be no hope. We couldn't get out of the law of causation because every cause produces an effect and that itself becomes a cause of another effect and there's no way out. So for a machine, there isn't any freedom and there's no way out of uh, those mechanical processes. But for us, there is a way out because we are free and that freedom is constantly impinging into our lives. The the, uh, mythic idea in Hinduism of Sri Krishna's uh, flute, playing the flute. That's the music of Krishna's flute, which is constantly calling us forward, which is giving us this sense of freedom, which is giving us this sense of uh, choice.
the sense that we have uh, uh, that we have freedom and we're called to ever greater freedom. And so as we grow in spiritual life, we begin to feel that we're more and more free. But then we see that freedom is not a matter of having free choices. Freedom is a matter of internal experience, of being not impinged on by anything, not affected by anything. And we begin to feel a little bit uh, of that, little uh, uh, more and more, but little bits at first. And that's the realm of our true freedom. The problem is we've looked for our freedom in the wrong place. But another great thing about Vivekananda is that he doesn't negate that sense of freedom. He says that that too is important, that there should be physical freedom. What is physical freedom? Meaning freedom of movement and, and so forth, a freedom to make choices and so forth at the ordinary uh, uh, level. There should be physical freedom. There should be social freedom. There should be intellectual freedom. And there should be spiritual freedom. So he accounts for those other senses of freedom we have and says that those are essential. One conclusion, a logical conclusion to say is that if there is no free choice, then we don't have to worry about giving people any choices. Just make all the decisions for them uh, and uh, then it'll be done. And that's what we do with machines. We make the decisions for them. They can't decide and so they don't make decisions. Uh, even if they have decision-making power programmed into them, that's what we have given, and, uh, uh, and it's not their decision-making. Uh, but we have the, uh, the power to make uh, decisions, and it's through making choices uh, that we move towards our true freedom. Yes, our, freedom, uh, our choices may be predictable, uh, and yet they're important. And so Swamiji said that in India... Society was very cramped, and so society didn't develop, but religion was free, and so religion had this wonderful flowering in India because it was allowed to be free. He said in the West, society was allowed to be free, at least after a certain point. It took a lot of uh, fights with uh, uh, churches and with other institutions, uh, 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 kings and queens and uh, churches to get free. But in the West, eventually they got social freedom, and so society began to flower, all kinds of social experiments and things going on. But religion was very cramped. It has always been cramped in the West. And so religion didn't grow and didn't flower as it did in India. So he said that freedom is the first condition of growth. And here he's talking about our ordinary concept of freedom the freedom to make choices and so forth. So that's important. You can't say, well, I'm going to give you freedom to do whatever you want as long as you don't make any mistakes. Uh, that's, not, uh, that's not freedom. I'm going to give you freedom to make the choices you want as long as it's the choice that I want. Uh, then that's uh, no freedom. No, you have uh, the freedom includes the range of possibilities that have to be allowed. And so Swamiji and Ramakrishna both in their different ways, their different ways of speaking of it, recognize that realm of freedom which is necessary for us. So the fact is that we can't work, we can't live for a moment without this sense of freedom, that we are free. Try it, you can't. You can't be a machine. B.F. Skinner tried it. He was the founder of behaviorism in modern psychology. And uh, at least he was sincere. He was sincere. And so in his... Uh, autobiography or his memoir published late in his life. Uh, there was a passage, I forget the exact words and exactly what he was talking about, but something in his, uh, in his present experience at that time, in his old age, had come up. And he said, why is it that I still have emotional reactions? I know that I'm just an action-reaction machine. Uh, it's just input and output. There's nothing more. Uh, there's there's, there's, there's nothing but mechanical processes here. Why do I still have emotional uh, reactions? Why can't I just be the machine that I am? 
but it's because it's impossible, because you're not a machine. He wasn't and none of us are, and great harm was done to people because they were treated as machines. They were thought of as machines, and still are by many people. Uh, uh, but the fact is we're not machines. There's something fundamentally different between a sentient being and a machine, and it's a great harm that uh, has been done to the world by this thinking of the whole cosmos as just a machine made up of parts that can be picked apart and put back together. No, that's not the nature of the, uh, the universe. Just as we are organisms, and an organism is fundamentally different from a machine, the universe itself is more organism than machine. And the sooner we realize that, then the better uh, for us and for the universe itself. So self-effort, it depends on the sense of being an agent, that I am responsible for my actions and I'm the one who enjoys the fruits of my actions. Uh, but what about surrender, the other side? Uh, Krishna again says at the end of the Gita, Sarva dharman parityajya mamekam sharanam braja. Uh, having renounced all other supports, take refuge in me alone. Don't fear, I will save you from all uh, uh, evil. It's uh, reminiscent of the later statement, beautiful statements of Christ, where he says, Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That beautiful, hopeful statement, uh, which for Christians has been uh, hope for 2,000 years. Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That rest which we seek for throughout our lives, that freedom from activity which we all seek for, uh, he promises. And he says, uh, my cross is, my uh, uh, burden is, uh, uh, my uh, cross is easy and my burden light. My cross is easy and my burden light. Uh, that is, surrender to me and you'll find, uh, uh, and you'll find uh, rest. Those beautiful uh, words. In Ramanuja, the great uh, philosopher of, Vedanta, uh, of uh, bhakti and Vedanta, devotion, uh, he says that to follow the path of bhakti yoga, all of these different uh, requirements are necessary, so many things you have to fulfill, uh, uh, so many qualities that you have to develop and so many practices you have to do. But then he says not everyone can do that. Those whose lives are simple and they're free to pursue uh, full-time spiritual pursuits, so they can do all of these things. But, for, uh, uh, but another way is needed for others who don't have that freedom. Uh, just to devote themselves to full-time spiritual practice. So he says there is another way which is better for them and uh, better for many people. He says that is the way of prapatti, the way of surrender, uh, where it's not a path of uh, doing all kinds of disciplines and things. It's just a path of simple surrender. Uh, give, uh, give yourself into the hands of God. Give yourself con uh, consciously into the hands of God. Uh, knowing that uh, God has promised in uh, all the scriptures of the world, all of the theistic scriptures of the world, that uh, he or she will take care of us if we surrender ourselves into the arms of God. And so the path of uh, prapatti. There's a beautiful story of uh, Girish Chandra Ghosh, the uh, devotee of Ramakrishna, who, uh, when Ramakrishna, when he asked Ramakrishna, what can I, what can a person like me do to uh, uh, attain salvation? And Ramakrishna said, well, think of me in the morning and in the evening. And Girish said, I sometimes don't know when is morning and when is evening. I'm involved in my the theatrical work and so forth. He said, well, think of me before you go to bed and when, uh, when you get up. And he said, sometimes I don't sleep at night. How can I do that? Well, think of me before you eat. And sometimes I'm not even conscious of eating. I'm uh, involved in writing and creative work and so forth. So then Ramakrishna said, well, it's enough if you give me your power of attorney. That is, just to surrender yourself to me. 
And so Girish uh, Ghosh actually did that, and he said that when, uh, when uh, Ramakrishna said that, he thought that, oh, I'm getting off scot-free, I don't have to do anything. I just give the responsibility to Ramakrishna, and I'm done with it. But then he, uh, then he said that over the years after that, I found what a severe discipline he had given me, that now I can't even breathe with the idea that I'm going to breathe. If I think I'm going to breathe, I have to say no. If uh, Thakur wills it, Thakur will breathe through me. And so he actually attained to a state of uh, complete surrender, a state of surrender where he uh, uh, didn't have any egotism behind any of his actions, just the pure sense of uh, surrender to God, uh, to God. So that's the path of surrender. There's a logic to surrender. And um, the, uh, as I said at the beginning of the talk, the jnani, the, f- the follower of the path of knowledge, also seeks that sort of repose. They seek it in a somewhat different way. They're not thinking of surrendering themselves into the arms of God. They think of surrendering my identity into the infinite ocean. Uh, that verse that I uh, started the lecture with, Aradram Jwalati, melting into the light, I am the light that shines. The light shines, the light which is Brahman, that infinite light. So we're not talking about a little light here, but they're an individual light. But the infinite light, which is the light of the universe, the light of infinite consciousness, of infinite wisdom and infinite love. I am the light that shines. The light shines the light which is Brahman. I myself offer myself into the infinite light which is myself. That is, I offer my little self with all of its striving, with all of its efforts, with all of its little ambitions and its little desires. I offer that into the infinite light of repose, the infinite light of quietude, the infinite light of peace and silence, tranquility. Um, And so that's for the jnani. Consciousness just is. And so we try to, on that path, we try to identify with consciousness and not with activity. The body and mind, let them go on. Swamiji says in his lecture in California, The Soul and God, he says, who cares if the mind and body run on? Who cares if the mind is controlled or not controlled? It doesn't matter. I'm not the mind. Let it go wherever it wants. Uh, I am the witness. I am pure consciousness itself. Let me identify with that. So that's the surrender of the jnani, that I surrender into that infinite ocean of being, and let the mind and body, uh, let them uh, go. That doesn't mean you let them go and then uh, suddenly all hell breaks loose and uh, you go crazy or that you start doing all kinds of weird things. No, it means that you are, do things much better because right now we're superimposing the sense of control and ownership over our actions. We're not owners of anything that we do. Uh, as I've said on uh, other occasions in different contexts, I think that I'm giving a lecture. No, that's stupidity, pure stupidity. I'm not giving a lecture. Uh, I don't know how to give a lecture. None of us knows how to talk. The the complexity of the action of speaking with the modulation of the oral cavity, the tongue, the cheeks, the jaw, uh, the uh, uh, vocal cords, the modulation of the breath, the translation of thoughts into words and so forth. It's such an infinitely complex action that nobody can do it. You don't know what you're doing. And yet the ego says, oh, I'm giving a lecture. No, I'm not. And if I stand back and let the lecture happen, I'm doing a great service. Uh, uh, maybe not to you, but to me. <laughs> uh, and so uh, with uh, an action as simple as walking, I think I'm going to walk from here to there to greet people. No, none of us knows how we walk. We don't know how to do it. We just say, I'm going to walk, and somehow it happens. So if I surrender my sense of ego, and if I can, uh, little by little, it's a practice in the beginning, But the more that I can do that, the the truer my actions will be because the ego is an imposter that takes, uh, gives this sense of being the responsible agent, the karta and bhokta of my actions. No, that's not true. 
Uh, for the jnani, it's just nature itself, the dynamism of nature, of prakriti, which is doing everything. And I stand back as the witness, as the witnessing consciousness. And for the bhakta, it's uh, 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 a little bit different because for the bhakta, there's God, there's the divine. For the bhakta, they don't divide it between consciousness and the operations of nature. Everything is God. God is everything. God is the infinite consciousness, and this universe itself is a manifestation of the divine. And so everything that happens is happening through the will of God. But that's uh, something I always have problems with, I have to admit. And even when I come across it in the teachings of Ramakrishna or others, uh, uh, and so I don't say this to give, uh, give you problems with it. If it works for you, that's fine. But uh, to, in case there are other strange people like me uh, for whom this uh, doesn't work, uh, what understanding I came to, so it does work beautifully for me now. This idea that God does everything, everything happens by God's will, is much too anthropomorphic for me, that God is sitting there saying that, well, I'm going to make this person make, uh, take notes, and I'm going to make that person bring a pen and paper, but I'm not going to allow them to take notes. They think they're going to take notes, but they're not. They're just going to sit there with the pen in their hand, and somebody, I'm going to make somebody else uh, scratch their ear, and somebody else move their leg a little bit. Well, no, God is not an idiot who sits around thinking, oh, okay, now make him scratch and make him move a little bit, and this person's going to wiggle, and this person's going to cough, and so forth. No, that's uh, attributing uh, idiocy to God. He's not like us. He's not a human agent with this uh, limited uh, decision-making power. God isn't sitting around making us do things in that sense. It's the very presence of God which does everything. It's the presence of God which uh, does everything. But God is infinitely conscious, conscious of everything. That's unimaginable, unimaginable to think, as Ramakrishna said, that God hears the footfall of an ant meaning the footfall of every ant, of the millions and millions of ants. And that's just of ants, not of others. He is a co conscious of the wiggling of the amoeba, the countless amoeba, the conscious of everything in the universe, of every particular within the universe. So Ramakrishna uses that limited analogy. God hears the footfall of an ant. Will he not hear the prayers of a devotee? So God is infinite consciousness, aware of everything at the same uh, moment. Uh, and so God is aware, God is love, God is uh, power, God is presence, God is consciousness, God is being, God is reality. And God is within everything as the motivating force. But not in the sense that he's uh, uh, sitting somewhere making somebody scratch their leg, making somebody else move this way, and somebody else think this thought, and somebody else think that thought. No, we come as we grow in the spiritual life, we come to feel that, yes, God is doing everything within me. But not in that little decision-making sense. Just it's the presence of God which is animating everything, making everything happen. And uh, so uh, it's to that that as a devotee we surrender. It's to that infinite God of love, a God who has no judgment whatsoever, who is not waiting, not the man in the sky waiting to see us make a mistake so he can strike us down with lightning or, or whatever. Uh, no, that idea of God we have to give up. God is the presence of reality within everything, infinitely aware, infinitely loving, all accepting. As Holy Mother said when she came down from a vision once, or a, a, not exactly a vision, but a transcendental experience, a very high experience, and some of her women, close women attendants were around her. She said, no one knows how Ramakrishna suffers, seated within the hearts of all, uh, just waiting for people to turn their attention towards him, and yet how few ever do. Meaning not that Ramakrishna is this little man that is uh, love-starved and he's waiting for people to give him a little bit of affection because he, uh, he needs it. Uh, no, but because he's love itself. 
He's the presence of reality itself, the presence of consciousness, uh, presence of all wisdom, all love uh, within the hearts of everyone, just waiting for us to turn our attention there. And that's what this sense of freedom is calling us towards. We think that our freedom is in making little decisions and deciding this and deciding that. But no, once we begin to hear the higher call of freedom towards that infinite repose, uh, then we begin to surrender the sense of activity, that I am the doer, I am the actor, uh, and seek uh, that freedom in infinite repose. Om Dyo Shanti Antariksham Shanti Prithivi Shanti Apashanti Oshadaya Shanti Vanaspataya Shanti Vishwe Deva Shanti Brahma Shanti Sarvam Shanti Shantireva Shantihi Sama Shantiredhi Om Shanti Shanti Shantihi Peace is in the heavens. Peace is in the sky. Peace is on earth. Peace is in the waters. Peace in the plants and the trees. The gods are peace. Peace is the nature of truth. Peace alone, peace. May that peace, real peace, be with us all. Om, peace, peace, peace be unto us and to all the beings of the universe.